Good morning, Deer Creek. Hey, great to be with you all. Glad you all made it through the snow. And uh, it's nice to have more than 11 people in a worship service, <laughs> as, as we did. I, if, at least it felt that way in first service. If you have Acts chapter 17 open, we're continuing on in our study of the book of Acts. Uh, before we dive in, let's pray and ask that God would bless the reading and uh, the teaching of his word. Will you join me? Heavenly Father, God, you're so gracious to us. It's by your grace that we're saved through faith in your son, Jesus Christ, and through him alone. It's not a work of our own doing. It's not according to work so that no one would boast. But it's by your grace that we come to you. It's by your grace working in our heart that we can even receive and hear your word to us. Oh, so God, we ask this morning, Heavenly Father, that you would be gracious still. We don't want to occupy ourselves with things too great and too marvelous for us. We don't want to presume to know who you are. We don't want to speculate as to what you would say. No, we want to quiet and calm our souls so that we can simply, intelligibly, and truly hear from you in these words that you've inspired. As we read this passage and hear it taught, would you please... Give us ears and grace to hear. Would you please teach us and remind us that we're hearing from you the lips of our God who so loved us that you gave us the greatest gift we could imagine, your very own son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we as the people of God pray and all his people said, amen. Acts chapter 17, beginning in verse 1, we read as Paul and Silas, they're planting churches throughout the Mediterranean world into the Roman Empire. And we pick up in verse 1 of chapter 17. Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who've turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea, and when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, therefore, believed, while not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. But when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but saw Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens, and after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed. This is the word of God. 
it's fascinating. You know, we've been, I think, studying the book of Acts now for just over five months, and it's fascinating just how masterful Luke, and Luke's the author of Acts, this book that we're reading, just how masterful Luke is in constructing this book. Sometimes we see Luke writes these long narratives with plot arcs. They go like through chapters, multiple chapters, in order to make his point. Sometimes he'll just retell sermons and teachings of early teachers and pastors like Paul and Peter. At other times, like we actually are going to see in our passage today, Luke will show how an event during his time is an event that mirrors and reflects a similar event that happened in the Old Testament. He'll also, again, in a masterful way, he'll, he'll use this technique known as a foil. A foil is when you compare and contrast characters or events in order to highlight a central truth, a central point in the story. The, the term comes from the ancient world, diamond sellers in the ancient world. What they would do is in order to sell their diamonds and to make them stand out, they would take a black foil, like a black piece of cloth, and they would set that out. And then they would take the diamond, they would put the diamond in the black foil. And once you did that, once you saw the diamond contrasted against the dark foil on the back, what it did is it showed the buyer in stark clarity, the clarity, the cut, and the color of the diamond. It highlighted for the buyer exactly what the seller wanted the buyer to see. Last week, the church and the message of Jesus, they just continued to spread. We saw that. And it was, it was just as Jesus said it would happen. In fact, 20 years prior to what we just read here, Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Then he ascended into heaven, departed from his followers, and he left them with these words, telling them what they were going to do. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. First in Jerusalem, then in Judea, then in Samaria, and then ultimately to the ends of the earth. And that's exactly what we have seen, ha seen happening over two decades. The church has ballooned. I mean, it's gone beyond Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and now it's the year 50 AD, and witness to Jesus is penetrating the ends of the earth. It's spreading throughout the Roman world. Just two days after Jesus left earth, his witness has gone from Jerusalem and now has traveled over 1,200 miles west into Greece. And as it penetrates the ends of the earth, in Acts chapter 17, Luke shows us two contrasting cities, a foil, a foil to highlight something for us, the Greek city of Thessalonica and the Greek city in Berea, contrasted with one another to highlight this central point that Luke is making throughout the book of Acts. It's the whole point of his story. It's this, the witness, the message of Jesus will always trigger a response. That's why he sets these two cities side by side, to show us that the message of Jesus always triggers a response. It will either be a response of faith or it'll be a response of opposition. We'll actually take those in reverse order. We're going to see opposition. You see it in verse 1. Read with me. We see Paul and Silas are in Greece and they're traveling west when they had passed through 
Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to the Greek city of Thessalonica. This is the first city in Luke's focus here, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, verse 2, as was his custom, on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. This is how the message of Jesus first, first spread. His witnesses, people like Paul, people like Silas, people like Peter and others, they would go first to a synagogue. They would go first to the Jews, sharing the message of Jesus with them, because these Jewish people, they were familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. But more importantly, they were familiar with the promises of God within the scriptures. You know, over the course of thousands of years, when you look at the Old Testament, which that's about how long it took to write the Old Testament, what God did is he sent prophet after prophet after prophet after prophet coming and giving a promise of a coming Christ, a coming king, a king who would establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. That was the central promise of the Old Testament. There were prophets like Isaiah. We're probably familiar with these Verses, But he's speaking of this coming king. He says, Behold, to us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of his peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. The coming king is coming and he will establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Daniel spoke about this too. Daniel, the other prophet, he came a little bit after Isaiah. He actually saw a vision. And in this vision, he said he saw, behold... With the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. This is messianic, Christ king language. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall never be destroyed. And there were more. There were prophets before Isaiah and Daniel. There were prophets after Isaiah and Daniel. Prophet after prophet came with the same promise. A king is coming. The Christ is coming. He's going to establish God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It's going to be a kingdom of righteousness and justice. A kingdom that stretches from sea to sea. Kings are going to fall down before this king. That was the promise. The promise throughout the Old Testament. The promise that every first century Jewish person would have been familiar with because they read the scriptures over and over and over again in their synagogue services. It was actually during this time, you know, the church was ballooning throughout the Roman Empire. Again, we said it's about 50 AD. The Jews had an expectation of what this king would look like, of what this Christ would do when he came. And we know what this expectation looked like because there are writings around the time. There's one writing called the Apocalypse of Baruch, Baruch, you don't know how to pronounce it, so just whatever I said, right? <laughs> but they talk about this coming Christ and what the expectation would be. He says, it shall come to pass when the Christ has brought low everything that's in the world. He will sit down in peace for the age of his throne and of his kingdom. The joy shall then be revealed and rest 
shall appear. That's what the king's going to do. He's going to bring peace, but the way he's going to bring peace is he's going to take every kingdom and he's going to bring them low. He's going to take every throne and he's going to overthrow them. And he's going to establish his throne in their place. He will be a Christ who conquers in political and military power. That's what the Christ is going to do. A Christ more culturally powerful than Caesar. He's going to be a promised king who is going to conquer politically. He's going to be a political conquering Christ. So as Paul and Silas are entering Thessalonica, they do everything as expected, everything according to script. They go first to the synagogues, then they go to the Jews. They open up the Old Testament scriptures, but then they go against expectations and they go off script. Notice what they say, verse 2. Paul, as was his custom on three Sabbath days, reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead and and saying, this Jesus, the Jesus you may have heard about, he was crucified in Jerusalem under Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he is the Christ. He's the promised king. Wait, 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 Paul. Hold on. You said suffered. I think what you meant to say was conquered, right? The Christ is going to come and he's going to conquer, bring low everything in this world, right? Overthrow the powers of this world through political might and power. It's necessary for the Christ to conquer, not suffer. Yeah, you got it all backwards, Paul. It's a lot like my kids, you know, they, they're kind of out of this stage now, but sometimes they get fixed on a certain thing and you can't get them out of it. So like our, our daughter, Annie, she has struggles with her words and they're the you know, common malphorisms like Pischetti, I want Pischetti tonight and I want to go ride my bicycle. The other day, you know, she was talking about 5-teen. I said, what's 5-teen? What is that? And she said, well, you know, 13, 14, 5-teen, 16, 17. I said, oh, no, 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 sweetie. It's 15, 14, 15, 16. And if you know my daughter, Annie, she said, no, it's not. It's 15. <laughs> it's hard to debate with her. And many of these Jews, they're similar in that regard. They've, they've set their expectations on a Christ who will conquer. That's what they expect. Now, here comes Paul, and he's saying, no, no, no. The Christ, it's necessary for him to suffer and then rise again from the dead. And that's what the scriptures say throughout over and over and over again. He has to point to them. And we still have species of this expectation today. Very common. This, this doesn't die. We all want a Christ who will politically take charge and take over in order to exercise influence and worldly power through cultural persuasion and might. That's what Christians should strive for. That's the... That's the thing we should be aiming for because once we get that, then, then the church will thrive. We need a king who will bring his kingdom now and overthrow all the evils of this earth. Then Christianity will spread. It'll thrive. It'll be embraced everywhere. We're going to hear this this political season. We hear it every political season that we need to take back our culture. We have to take it back. 
Because if we don't take it back, then we're going to lose control. We need to get the right people in office. Christianity is about influence and change and getting the right people in positions of power. We need to use our political influence as the church to leverage our influence to regain our culture, to regain this world. And we hear this sentiment not just from the right, it's also on the left. No matter what stripe of Christian you are, this is the sentiment. We need a kingdom of this world. In fact, there was a well-known evangelical author. He published a book. It was about a, about a year ago now, but he, he put it well, this, this sentiment that we have. He said, we live in desperate times, and desperate times call for desperate measures. The church must work to put candidates in power who will enact policies to help people. This means Christ followers may need to vote for someone whom others may criticize for being guilty of this or that. This means the church and its pastors need to be concerned about more than being a pillar and buttress of truth and evangelism, but they must also be a spearhead of political activism. The preaching of the Bible, that's not enough. Jesus Christ, him crucified, atoning death is a sacrifice for sinners to avert eternal destruction in hell. Witnessing the truth in a world that is shrouded in darkness and lies, preaching about Christ Jesus, preaching about his word, administering his sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Oh, those won't do it. No, we need to get power. That's when the church will thrive. You've got to be a spearhead of political activism. You can imagine what Paul would say to this because he did say it. He faced the same expectation in his time, the same expectation that we have today. He would say, no, no, no. Look at the scriptures. Look at what God promises. I know what your expectation is. I know what you want the Christ to do, but it's not the whole picture. You've missed large swaths of the scriptures in the Old Testament that say the Christ will come not to be served, not to grasp political power, not to use his deity as a means of leveraging worldly influence, but instead he will come to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. He will come to suffer. So Paul explained, he proved He reasoned with them, looking explicitly at passages of Scripture to show them, look at what the Scriptures say of the Christ. You can imagine what he did. He probably went back to Genesis chapter 3. This is the first time that God had promised the coming king. God promised that one day a descendant, an offspring from Eve would come who would destroy Satan. He would destroy his power and conquer God's enemy. So Genesis 3.15, God says this promise and he's speaking to Satan. He says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and Eve. And between your offspring and Eve's offspring. He will crush your head, but you, Satan, will bruise his heel. See, Paul, it says right there, he's going to crush the world powers. He's going to crush Satan and bring low every kingdom. He's going to conquer. Paul would say, did you not see what else it said? Absolutely, he's going to crush Satan, but the Christ will also be struck. He will be bruised by Satan. He 
The Christ will be brought low. He, the Christ, will be conquered. He will suffer in order to save. But what about Psalm 2, Paul? Right? Doesn't Psalm 2 say very explicitly, speaking again of the Christ, does it not say, the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. And then speaking about the Christ to come, he says of these worldly powers, you shall break them with a rod of iron, verse 9, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Doesn't it say that, Paul? Well, of course. The Christ will conquer, but it also says of the Christ, Psalm 22, speaking of the king who cries out before God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among themselves. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Even Isaiah, who speaks of the king, remember his wonderful counselor, mighty God, prince of peace, of his government there will be no end. See to see his kingdom established. Even Isaiah, speaking of the coming Christ, says he has to be a suffering Christ. He says he has to be despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. Expectation, a promised political Christ. The reality of Scripture is a conquering Christ who must first suffer and rise from the dead in order to ransom sinners to enter into his kingdom. C.S. Lewis, I think, I think he hits this on the head. He, he puts it probably better than anybody has. He referred to this world as enemy-occupied territory. That's what this world is, filled with evil and death. But Christianity is the story of how the rightful king has landed. You might say landed in disguise in a way no one expected and has inaugurated his great campaign of sabotage, his campaign to forgive the unforgivable and love the unlovable, his campaign to overthrow all sin by his cross and bring sinners who don't deserve such treatment into his glorious kingdom. It's almost as if the Jewish people in this synagogue, it's almost as if they're reading the Old Testament or reading the Bible with one eye covered. They see the parts that mention the power of Christ. They see the parts where he's going to conquer. They clearly see those parts, and those parts are true. Don't get me wrong. Christ will conquer. But what they miss are the large swaths that say, in order for Christ to conquer, he must first conquer sin in his cross. He must first suffer and die for our sins so that when he comes to conquer, we might be forgiven and actually able to enter 
into his kingdom. What they don't see is that if anyone, anywhere, will enter the kingdom of God, then the Christ must first suffer for their sin to be removed. The Christ must first suffer to have their sin punished upon himself. The king must first die for their sin to be forgiven. That's the Christ nobody expected, the king that they missed, the king who came not to be served, but to serve and suffer to overthrow our sin by his cross. When Jesus said, you will be my witnesses to the ends of the earth, this is the message he sent them out to explain, to prove, to proclaim the message so many times we miss and fail to see, the message that Jesus is the king that nobody expected, the Christ who so loves sinners. He came and laid down his life in order to save them. Friends, it does a person absolutely no good to hear of a conquering Christ without first hearing the message of a suffering Christ. If Christ were to come without suffering and came to conquer, you know who he would conquer? Us. You want a God who will destroy all evil and overthrow all wickedness? What would that mean for you? Before a conquering Christ can come in his glory and majesty and awe and splendor before his kingdom can come on earth as it is in heaven, the king must first suffer and die so that sinners can even enter and take a step into his kingdom. Listen carefully. No person can enter eternity with God. No person can know the bliss and joy of God's coming kingdom in heaven unless they first embrace Jesus the suffering Christ, crucified for the forgiveness of their sins. It's the message Jesus sent his church out to proclaim. Not a conquering Christ, not a Christ of worldly power, but a Christ who came and suffered and died. That is the message that you will either embrace, and in that embrace, Jesus Christ, you know, suffered the penalty for your sins eternally by his death on the cross, or you will pay the penalty for your sins eternally in your own stead, and you will be cast out from the kingdom of God. That's why Paul says, verse 3, this is the heart right here. It was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead. This Jesus whom I proclaim to you, he's the Christ. He's the king. You need him more than anything else. Believe in him and you will enter the kingdom of God. In verse 4, we see that some in this synagogue, they hear this witness, they hear this message, and it triggers faith. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But something's off. Paul probably noticed this. Not everyone's on board. This witness has also triggered something else. It hasn't triggered faith in everybody who's gathered. For others, the witness of Paul and Silas triggers the opposite. It triggers opposition. Look with me, verse 5. But the Jews who were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. 
And then when he could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, these men have turned the world upside down and they've come here also. And Jason has received them and they're all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, King Jesus. Man, talk about opposition. There's a church actually... uh, we're affiliated with this church. They're in our, our presbytery. They're up north. And I don't know if you have heard this, but Jefferson County, they're still in Jefferson County, this church. Jefferson County has closed over 16 schools just in this past calendar year. Meanwhile, this church, it's growing. It's thriving. They've gone to two services. They, they've decided they're growing out of their space. So what they did is they made a bid to purchase one of these buildings because it's not being used. And the church was told by the authorities, we'll we'll consider your bid. But what happened is when the community meeting was called to discuss what would happen to those buildings, to the school, and to review all the potential bids before them, the church's bid was completely removed, never brought up, it wasn't even considered. It wasn't like the church was told, well, we don't agree with you, we have different beliefs, we just could see that this space could be used differently, so for that reason, maybe we'll go with this bid. No, it was actively resisted, it was actively suppressed, it was buried, removed without telling anyone. People from the church showed up to the community meeting expecting that their bid would be talked about, and it wasn't even brought on the agenda. They weren't told by anybody. Those who had political, worldly power actively opposed the bid of the church without even telling them. That's exactly what happens here in Thessalonica. Active resistance from the worldly powers. When Paul and Silas share the message of Jesus, the suffering Christ, those who have worldly power are triggered into opposition. They see it growing. They see it thriving. And they're triggered into opposition. It's brilliant. Again, notice how Luke states this. Look with me again at verse 5. It says the Jews, meaning not all Jewish people, but the leaders of the Jewish community here in Thessalonica. The Jews were jealous. It's interesting. It's a fascinating word, jealous. You know, we've been talking about the coming Christ, and it hasn't gained traction at all. But now these people are hearing about a suffering Christ, and all of a sudden people are following them. So they took some of the wicked men of the rabble and formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, the place where Paul and Silas were staying. Again, this is how masterful Luke is. That phrase, some wicked men of the rabble forming a mob, that phrase mirrors almost verbatim an Old Testament story of a king called Jeroboam. Jeroboam had taken the kingdom of God on earth the the nation of Israel, and he split it in half. He took his half. He set up a false worship of God. He set up a false kingdom. He named himself king of this kingdom. And what it was, it was just a defiance of the kingdom of God, a defiance of the kingdom of Israel, defiance of the work of God in the Old Testament. And that's the response exactly that's triggered in Thessalonica. And you realize it's actually the norm throughout history. When the message of Jesus is taught, the norm that is triggered is opposition. Not, well, we don't exactly agree. Religion's a good thing, though, so keep on going. I can see how that helps you personally, but it just isn't right for me. No, the norm, as it was in Thessalonica throughout history, is just as it was during the time of Jeroboam. The message of Jesus, the message of Scripture, triggers active defiance against the living God. That's the norm. 
I mentioned this uh, a couple a couple months ago, the, there's a man by the name of Aaron Wren. He wrote a fascinating article talking about how since the year 1994, so much has changed in the United States uh, up to now. And he made this observation that before 1994, people in the United States, generally speaking, viewed Christianity as a positive influence in society. There was a positive view of Christianity. Christians, they thought, brought a measure of good to society. Religion was good, so it was good to have Christians in culture to make the culture a better place. Christian moral norms were kind of the basic norms of society. And violating those norms could bring consequences. But then he says a shift happened in 1994. It was a, shuttle, a subtle shift. But in 1994, society shifted from a positive view to a more neutral view. A neutral view that said... Christianity, it doesn't have the privileged position it used to have, but, you know, you can worship how you want. We're not going to favor your religion, but we're not going to disfavor it. It was a neutral view of Christianity, and it didn't harm somebody's social status to be a Christian. But then a real shift happened in the year 2015 up to the present day, where society went from a positive view to a neutral view to now a negative view of Christianity. In this society... Christian morality is expressly rejected. It's actually seen as a threat to the public good and has negative consequences in our culture if you promote it and if you promote Jesus, you're viewed negatively. Fascinating article. But even more fascinating is the response of many Christians. You know, oftentimes the Christian is, well, this is uncharted territory. What are we going to do? How can we possibly exist in a society that opposes our message? How can we exist in a culture that's not anchored to Christianity? But realize, this is what we fail to realize, a negative view and opposition to the message of Jesus is nothing new. It's not uncharted territory. No, it's the norm. The norm throughout history, it's not positive. It's not even neutral. The normal response triggered throughout history to the message of Jesus is what we see in Thessalonica. Active defiance, active resistance, active opposition to the message of Jesus. Post-2015, we've not entered the exception. We've entered the norm. We've entered the rule. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. They said, what? And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. They punished them financially, holding back a security and said, you will not receive this money back if Paul, if Silas, or if any one of you starts preaching this name of Jesus again. Friends, what do we want? What do we expect? Do we want political influence and more? hospitable culture now by seeking power, enforcing our influence, enforcing our political might, drumming up a Christian base to take back things. You realize if that's what you want, if that's what we want, you do realize Jesus never promises that that will be a reality. Never. He never promises cultural influence. Never. But he does promise opposition. He does promise that our lives will look like his, just as Jesus was scorned and rejected, opposed by those who had worldly power. He says, expect you too will be opposed, rejected, despised by those who have worldly power. That's the norm. That should be our expectation. Not a king or a kingdom that will grow, 
and then we'll have influence, then people will embrace us. That's never been the norm, nor should it be our expectation. The response that we should expect is opposition to the message of Jesus. It's not the only response, though. There is good news. You look, beginning in verse 10, in Berea, once Paul goes to Berea, him and Silas, the message of Jesus triggers something different. It triggers faith. Look at verse 10. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. And this time, there's a different response. Verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. There's something different about these guys, these Bereans. Can't quite put my finger on it yet, but they're set in contrast to those in Thessalonica. This is a foil, remember. And here's the difference. Verse 11. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. In Berea, the message of Jesus, it doesn't trigger opposition, it it triggers faith. They were more noble than the Thessalonians. They received the message of Jesus with eagerness. Tell us what this says, Paul. Tell us what the scriptures say. We want to conform to those. And this is the key verse when it says, they examined the scriptures to see what they said, and they believed in Jesus, the suffering Christ, for the forgiveness of their sins. The scriptures guide what they believe. Just by the way, how how different is that from our context? I mean, it's almost 180 degrees different. In our context, we look at the scriptures and we we can typically say, oh, I I see the Bible says this about the dangers of money. All of those things, they're just warnings for people back then. Our context is probably different, so it probably doesn't apply to us, probably doesn't apply to me. Oh, I see the Bible says this about human sexuality. Oh, well, but that's outdated. I mean, after all, they wrote like 2,000 years ago. More than that, 3,000 years ago. Sometimes 4,000 years ago. We've progressed. It's just an ancient book. They didn't know better than us. They didn't know what it meant that two people of the same sex could have an intimate, loving relationship. They, they, they can't apply today. They, they, were, they were ignorant of that fact. Oh, that's what God says about male and female? That doesn't really fit how I think of it. I mean... They must not have known that, you know, gender's a spectrum and, you know, we, we can kind of choose. It, it, that, that, it can't apply to us. Scriptures say that about God? Oh, that's not how I think of him. No, 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 that's not how I think of him. How, how could God be like that? Surely if God exists, he'd look a lot more like the version of God that I already have that I've always believed in. The Bible says that about sin. It says that about creation. It says that about di- divorce. It says that about the poor. Bible says that about the Bible? I know it says those things, but ah. Surely I know better. Surely I can find a blog in the dark corners of the internet that will already conform to what I believe to be true and it'll contradict what thousands and thousands of years of Christian tradition and reading of the scriptures. They must have overlooked that, but Blogspot will tell me probably what is more accurate and more true about the God of the universe. It's nothing more than our version of reading the scriptures with one eye closed. I like that about God. I like that. I like that. I like that. That part, that part, mm, that part over there, not so much. 180 degree difference in Berea, right? Their response is faith. 
I guarantee there were men and women in Berea who disagreed in their heart, in their mind. They had an expectation of what the Christ was supposed to be. But then when Paul came and he showed them, look at the scriptures, Christ must suffer. Christ must be crucified for your sins. Christ must die so you can be forgiven. When they examined the scriptures and saw those things, what the Bible said, they had faith. And they received, look at verse 11, they received the word with all eagerness. And they believed. Their mind changed because the scripture said something that they did not believe. They received it with faith. You know how we approach the scriptures is we stand over the scriptures and we say, okay, verse 26, like that. Verse 27, not so much. Let me grab my Sharpie here. Verse 28, ah, I guess that could stay. 29, yeah, yeah, I need that Sharpie again. We stand over the scriptures and we judge and scrutinize the scriptures. Not the Bereans, no, they stand under the scriptures. They say, what does God say? And then I'm going to conform my belief because God says it. Therefore, I'm going to conform my beliefs, my habits around that. I must change, not the Bible. I had a mentor friend, uh, he was a pastor. He said something brilliant. He, he said, as a pastor, if you want to know where a person is at spiritually, watch what they do when the scriptures are read, especially the hard parts of the scriptures, the parts that go against our modern sentiments. Watch what they do at those messages of the scriptures. They will either soften and receive or they will harden and resist. He said, the scriptures are like the noonday sun. The same sun that melts the chocolate also hardens the clay. I found out years later that that quote about, you know, the one about the sun, that actually came from the Puritans. It's just like pastors, right? All pastors do this. The first time we say something, we say, the great Puritan once said, when we say it again, we begin by saying, as you've heard me say before. <laughs> Finally, by the third time we say something, we say, as I'm known to say, the same sun that melts the chocolate hardens the clay. Regardless of the source, isn't it true? The message of Jesus always triggers a response. Either opposition, Thessalonians, the foil, or the Bereans, they soften faith. Faith in the God who wrote it, faith in the God who planned it, faith in the God who sent his son in love to suffer and die so that we might enter his kingdom. If you want to know where a person is at spiritually, where they're at with God, how do they respond to the message of Jesus? The scriptures. I'm reminded of what Jesus said. Middle part of his ministry Speaking to two audiences, first, those who he wants to encourage, Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Speaking to those who didn't receive it. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I come not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. 
You're of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Then he ends by saying this, but because I tell you the truth, you don't believe me. How do you respond to the message of Jesus? Just as King Jesus says, the witness, his message is going to trigger a response. You will have faith and you'll soften like chocolate or you will harden in opposition like clay, leading to your own condemnation, your own destruction, showing you do not believe the truth, but you believe the father of lies, even Satan himself. Don't you see how masterful Luke is? He he sets this narrative, these two accounts, Thessalonica, Berea, in contrast with one another, as if to say, what is your response? It doesn't matter what their response was. What is your response, the reader, the hearer of the word Jesus? What is your response? Because the word will continue. Verse 13, when the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, they came there too, agitating and stirring up the crowds. Opposition will continue. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. Those who conducted Paul brought him as far as Athens. And after receiving a command for Silas and Timothy to come to him as soon as possible, they departed, staying in Athens where the message of Jesus would just continue to spread and spread and spread to the ends of the earth. It'll continue penetrating new areas, ballooning and spreading, just as Jesus said it would. What's your response? Will you embrace it by faith? Or will you harden in opposition? Let's pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, you are the king of creation. (laughs) As we speak, you're enthroned in heaven. You're worshipped by angels and all living creatures. You're surrounded by praise because you're the king of all things. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power and might. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Oh, Jesus, we thank you that your message, your gospel of free forgiveness and eternal life through your suffering and death has reached us. We thank you that you also give us hearts that embrace it by faith. Oh, I pray, King Jesus, for those who don't know your name or those who are actively opposing your message. Would you give them your Holy Spirit to soften their hearts that they might embrace you by faith? And would you, Holy Spirit, help us to respond daily by trusting, believing, resting in the promises of your word, the scriptures you inspired. Help us, O Holy Spirit, to respond to what you say, not in opposition or defiance, but in trust and in faith. We believe, God, help our unbelief.